0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. My guest today is Dr. Esther Wojcicki. She's a high school journalism teacher from Palo Alto High School in California, and also happens to be one of the most remarkable people we've ever had on the podcast. You see, Esther has proved to be a masterful parent when it comes to producing highly successful adults. She raised three daughters, all of whom grew up to become uncommonly accomplished. Susan is the CEO of YouTube. Janet is a Fulbright scholarship winning professor at the UC San Francisco Medical School. And Anne is the co-founder and CEO of genetic testing company 23andMe. So I hope the question that's running through your mind right now is what were the unique things this mother did that influenced all of her children to flourishing like this? And I hope you're asking yourself this question, whether or not you're a parent yourself. I've long held the belief that the practice's highly effective parents like Esther employ to help their kids thrive are very much aligned to the practice's highly effective leaders use to draw out the greatness in their adult employees. And exploring this big idea is really the primary focus of the podcast. The truth is, Many people have wondered over the years, what was it specifically that Esther did to help her three daughters excel in the world? And she's just answered the question in her new book called How to Raise Successful People. And if your fantasy is that Esther is almost guaranteed to be an Americanized version of a tiger mom who insisted her kids focus exclusively on success and competition and perfection and really beating out others, well, this just couldn't be farther from the truth. Instead, Esther raised her children using values that are the antithesis of this kind of parenting. She chose to emphasize trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. Over the past 36 years, Esther has used these same values to motivate her behavior as a high school journalism teacher. And this led her to being named California's Teacher of the Year and to being regarded today as one of America's most admired educators. If you boil it all down, Esther's profound success as a mother and a teacher are the result of being deeply and unusually caring as a person. And because caring is one of the essential themes of this podcast, we're about to dig into how she discovered that caring about others would produce such incomparable leadership success. It is a joy and an honor to welcome you to the podcast, Esther Wojcicki.
1: Thank you so much for including me and interviewing me. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Well, thank you. I have read your book and learned you had an upbringing, let's just say, that was very, very different from the one that your daughters had and much more painful. You grew up with very little in a one-bedroom apartment on New York's Lower East Side. You saw your 16-month-old brother die after swallowing a bottle of aspirin pills and largely because he was refused treatment at several hospitals because your parents lacked the money to pay. And as a girl, you were treated by your parents as being inferior to all the boys. So let's start there. Tell us a little about these experiences and how they influenced you when you had children and students of your own.
1: So these experiences were not the types of experience I would recommend for anybody, although they did have somewhat of a positive outcome on me. I grew up in a very poor family, an immigrant family, And one of the most painful parts of my childhood was the death of my youngest brother. And he died because he ate quite a few, I don't know how many, aspirin out of a bottle of aspirin. And then when my mother called the doctor, clearly he didn't listen. I don't know what he was thinking because he advised her to put him to bed and to see how he would be in a couple of hours. Well, I think anybody who knows anything knows that if you eat a poison that you should get rid of it, you should remove it in some way, and you shouldn't just wait around and see how you're gonna be in a few hours. Anyway, being an immigrant and not confident at all in her own abilities or her own common sense, she followed the doctor's advice, and in a few hours he was violently ill. Then we went from hospital to hospital to try to get him treated, and we really couldn't do it, you know, because we didn't have proof of payment. So one of the things that I learned as a result of this was that number one, I didn't want to live in poverty. Number two was that I did not want and I could not believe people no matter what they said, no matter what their title was, no matter how educated they seemed to be. I couldn't believe what they said unless I checked it myself. And so being a poor kid not having a lot of access to entertainment or any other things. We didn't travel. We didn't do much of anything. I spent most of my time in what was the most entertaining place around and was free, the local public library. And it turns out it's a really great place. I, there were a lot of books that I could read. There was a lot of people, the librarians that I became friends with. It was a really great place for me. And then I realized in doing that, that one of the most valuable things that I could do to get out of poverty was to be educated. And that's what happened to me. And that's why I became really passionate about the power of education and enabling anybody to get out of poverty. And that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing today and how I ended up as a teacher.
0: Well. Many of us didn't have the deeply painful childhood that you did. Obviously, watching your little brother pass away when you kind of realized that there was no reason for it. I'm pretty convinced that whatever upbringing any of us has tends to play a huge role in shaping the kind of person and even leader we go on to become. So... Tell us how you made sense of all of this and how did you heal yourself from the trauma of losing your brother to being treated inferiorly by your parents in terms of just simply because you were a girl and not a boy? And what was your process in healing this and coming to know yourself so securely?
1: Well, it was not on the conscious level. You know, as children, you, it's not on the conscious level. It was just I knew I had to get out of poverty I knew I did not like being treated as a second-class citizen just because I was a girl. I knew that there must be a better way. I looked around, I saw other people. They all seemed to be in much better situation. And so I said to myself there were two options. One was that I was gonna try to get out in the best way possible, and the other was I was just gonna be sad and depressed and angry about my situation as it was. And I didn't say that to myself, I just felt it. I felt that I could do it, that there had to be a better way. And so I guess you can say that I somehow healed myself because I believed enough in myself that I was going to follow this education path. Because the alternative was basically, from my perspective, it was death. It was poverty, which is really pretty terrible. You don't have enough to eat. You don't know where you're gonna be able to sleep the next night. You know, you don't have much of anything.
0: How did you make that pivot, though? You said it was unconscious, but some of it had to be conscious.
1: I think it was conscious. You know, I became very directed that I was actually going to be able to, to get out of this situation. I mean, I realized that I was healthy. You know, I had, fortunately, all my health about me. I was physically capable. I was very able to do what most little kids can do, you know, run, jump, a lot of other things. I realized that I could also read and think. I just believed in myself that I there was a way out.
0: Where did that confidence come from?
1: That's a good question, you know. I think it came, well, also I had One parent, my mother, who believed in me. And so perhaps that came from her. She was also in a subservient position because that's the way, there was the role of women at that time. But she believed in me. And then I think that's, I believed in myself. I believed that I could get out of this situation. And I was surrounded by people, a lot of men, older men, of course, you know, relatives, that all seemed to be you know, doing what basically men did back in, in my era, you know, that was the 1950s. You know, men were in total control. They, they still are in many parts of the world. And I mean, I just grew up in that atmosphere where men were in control. And uh, women, the role of the wife or the woman or the, even the female child was clearly defined. And I just did not want to be part of that world.
0: Was that difficult for you to figure out a way to maneuver through all of that in that era? In other words, as you were coming of age in the perhaps the 1960s, you're now in your 20s, you're trying to figure out your life. Were you just so determined that you were going to succeed despite the fact that you felt you know, uh, as a woman a little bit oppressed in your culture?
1: Yeah, I was determined. I went to work at the age of 14, at a local newspaper. Now, why I decided to do that, I really am not sure. You know, somehow, I decided that if you could do a really good job, newspapers represented the underdog. The people who somehow, if you were a good reporter, you reported everything and you tried to help people. And that was my vision. And I went to work at that local newspaper at the age of 14 because at that age, my parents had said to me, if I wanted to go to college, I was gonna have to pay for it myself. They were not gonna pay anything at all because they were saving all their money for my brother. And so that's what I did. I went I went to work as a fledgling journalist. And actually, I was just a girl Friday. And these people at this newspaper trained me. It was called the Sunland Tohunga Record Ledger. And I don't think it exists anymore today. It was a weekly newspaper. And that was the beginning of my working career, beginning of my journalism career. From there, I went on to something called the Los Angeles Mirror News, also no longer existing. But then I went on to the Los Angeles Times. Of course, that still exists. But I believed that I could do it. And I mean, I was just determined to get out of that situation. I went to Berkeley on a scholarship, a full scholarship. And just the opposite of what kids do today, I went on a Greyhound bus to school from Los Angeles to Berkeley with two suitcases. And that's how I arrived.
0: You also seem determined to help others. This came through in your book as sort of one of your most essential values. So before we get into talking a little bit more about the book and your your five values. Tell us what motivated you to help others. You weren't just helping yourself grow out of this. It seems that you were motivated to help others in the process.
1: Yeah, I was always motivated to help others because I realized that, you know, a lot of other people were living in similar situations. And I wanted them to be able to get out also and be able to live a satisfying life. That didn't mean having a a lot of money, it just meant having enough money so that you could buy food, shelter, clothing, and do some fun things, activities, entertainment, things like that. And yes, I was always interested in helping other people and helping other kids. And I realized a sense of community was really important. And I worked on it. I worked on always having a lot of friends and a sense of community. When I went to Berkeley, I lived in the UC Berkeley student cooperative dorms. And the reason I lived there is because we worked in the dorm and that made the price of the housing, I think it was one-third the cost of the typical housing at Berkeley. And so it was an incredible sense of community. We all worked together. You know, we made that dorm run, doing things like cleaning everything, including the toilets, and ordering the food, and preparing the food. And this dorm I was in, it was called Sherman Hall, there were, I think, 50 girls that lived in that dorm, and then we were radical in the sense that we invited boys, they were boarders, they could eat at the same dorm with us. And in those days, males and females didn't even eat together. And so this was a big step for these young men that, you know, essentially ate there. There were 50, I think, young men that ate there. And as a result, we made enough money to be able to, you know, support some of the things we were trying to do at the dorm. So, you know, it was one step at a time. I was getting an education, and I was learning a lot about being a leader and working in a group through the cooperative dorms. And then there was a lot of pressure on me to get married, tremendous pressure, because... You know, in the Jewish religion, that's what girls do. They get married. They're not educated. So I got married really early, and I had just turned 21 when I got married. And fortunately, I married a really good guy who I'm <laughs> still married to today. The only thing is that, you know, he was not accepted by my whole family, even though he's a great human being, and that's because he's Catholic, and you know how... Orthodox Jews don't like Catholics. Well, anyway, so half my family disowned me for doing that. So, it was, you know, I, I'm telling you, it was a struggle. It was not easy. And I just want to remind all those people out there who are, you know, in some sense struggling. Life is a struggle. You just have to be optimistic. And you have to keep at it. And, you know, it will get better if you just keep on the path your goal. My goal was to be educated and have a job, have a house, and have food to eat. And I succeeded in in doing all of those, actually more than my wildest dreams ever. I'm thrilled, but I'm also happy to keep teaching. That's why I continue to teach, because I think that I'm offering to young people the same skills that I learned and I developed in order to be able to have a good life.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, I'm really glad that you called out. It was very encouraging what you just said. And I think Scott Peck said many years ago, life is difficult. And I think at any given point, people are struggling and need encouragement. And having a sense of optimism that you can triumph over difficult situations is something that's day-to-day for a lot of people, for all of us. You know, sometimes you just go, is my life working? Am I doing okay? You know, and just having a sense that you can, triumph over some really tragic kinds of situations is very encouraging. So thank you for that. And you mentioned leadership, and I want to transition into that. Your book is about parenting, and you are a remarkable parent. And rather than apply your five values to raising successful children, which you've done, I'm hoping that we can pivot into a discussion around how these same values can help leaders achieve far greater success and how they manage adults. That's the whole premise of the podcast. And we did discuss a little bit, you know, for just a few seconds before we started. So I know you're okay with that. So let's begin with the high level question. How did you discover that these values of trust and respect, independence, collaboration and kindness would be your primary tools of your trade?
1: I realized that these are the primary tools Trick is what the acronym to help you remember it. When I was teaching, when I was first teaching, the question was like, why was I so successful? I actually didn't really know why I was so successful. I had to ask my students what I was doing or why were they taking my course? I, I remember asking year after year, like, so what was so great about this class? The first time I got the answer, I actually didn't believe it. Because they said, well, the reason we're taking it is because you trust us. You know, that just did not ring a bell. I thought to myself, must be because of the curriculum, you know, or it's, it must be something that, you know, my way of explaining things or I really did not understand it. But it took several years of students saying the same thing for me to realize that trust and respect, respect for student ideas, trust trusting them to come up with ideas that I thought were, that they thought, and I thought were acceptable or good, actually, was the key. And that they loved to be trusted and respected. As a matter of fact, they loved it so much that they told their friends about it. And then, you know, my program grew from my original 19 or 20 kids in 1984 to hundreds of kids that wanted to take the program. And I realized that there must be something about this trust thing that they're talking about. And then in 2014, I did a TED Talk, and they asked me to come up with, like, what was it about my classes that seemed to be attracting everybody? And I came up with this acronym at that point. Before that, I had realized that trust and respect was really important. And then the acronym includes independence, and collaboration and kindness. And I realized that that just filled out the entire pedagogy, the entire way that I was treating students. And it made a lot of sense. And then I ran this idea by my class and they thought it was a good idea. They liked it. And so then I also realized, this was back in the 1990s, I realized that those values really made a huge difference. And when Google started, I realized that one of the things they were doing when they first started was that they were hiring the best people they could find and then trusting them and respecting them. And I thought, this is really, this is the way to do it. And then in addition, they were giving them a lot of independence. Collaboration is the key at Google. That's what they do. And they treat them with kindness. They don't fire you at Google if you get tired of your job. They just ask you to look around and see what else in the company you might want to do. And it all made sense to me. So that is something that happens not just in your school, and not just in your home, which is what I talk about in the book, but it happens in business. If people want to have really successful business, and work effectively with people with on the same team with your partners, they need to embody this trick that I've talked about because everybody, everybody in the world wants to be treated with trust and respect. That is the number one thing that everybody's trying to get and that's why they all want money. They want money because somehow they're gonna be able to buy something which they will then wear, which will then indicate that they should be treated with respect. And I say to myself, well, let's just treat everybody that way. Let's treat our employees. You know, if you're an employer, let's treat your colleagues with trust and respect. We're all going to achieve our goals much more effectively. Life's going to be much better on a daily basis.
0: So let me give you some pushback on this from where we are in real life. Just last year, the Edelman Trust Barometer showed that trust in America, we have an audience all over the world, but specifically in America, it had its steepest one-year decline in history. It found over half of us don't trust our neighbors. Most parents don't trust their teachers to do their jobs. Tell us why you believe we no longer trust each other and why giving our trust to others is so necessary for leadership success. So it worked really well for you. Obviously, in your classroom, your students came alive. It clearly worked well with your raising your three children. But we have a really serious problem in business with not trusting employees, not trusting authority. I mean, it it works both ways. So tell us why you think we're off track and how to get back on track.
1: So the power of the leader cannot be understated. And I think we have in leadership in multiple countries in the world, and of course in the most powerful country in the world, we have examples of no trust. We have examples of a lot of deceit and lying. And so that makes all of us, not just in you know one country, but it makes us all worldwide distrustful. And we seem to be hiring or electing people that are not trustworthy. And it's an epidemic. I think this Edelman Trust Barometer is correct. Part of what I'm trying to do is I want to fight against it. I know that you know the water's running in the other direction, but some of us have to stop that and say that the way that the world is going to work the best is when we have leaders who are responsible, who tell the truth, and who are trustworthy that we can model on. And even without those leaders, there are going to be lots of smaller leaders in society worldwide that we can use as examples and moderate what we're doing in the world today. And we don't want to end up with a global crisis. And right now, the number one global crisis facing the planet is global climate change. And we all need to work together. You know, Canada, the United States, Latin America, Europe, Asia, all of us, we're all on the same planet, Africa, everyone. And if we don't work together, we're not going to be able to solve this problem. And right now, we're doing a bad job. And as you say, we don't trust teachers. I mean, really, I don't know a single person that went into teaching to make money. They all go into teaching because they're committed. They want to help your child. And I think that teachers control the future, like parents control the future. Change your parenting, you will change the world. And change your teaching, you will also change the world. The way we treat our children, these are the people who are going to be taking over the world in 20 years. And so the way we treat them is so important and we need to treat them with trust and respect. They have to be treated well in childhood because otherwise they come out and they're angry and then they spend a lot of time trying to overcome their childhood. Actually, we have hundreds of self-help programs out there where people focus on overcoming your childhood. Mm -hmm. Why should we have to do that? Why not just... Treat your children well to start. Treat the kids in school well to start. Treat your employees with trust and respect. They will help you succeed in ways you have never, ever expected.
0: Esther, why is this so hard for us? It's easy for you, and you've proven that it works, but it's not happening outside of us. So what's your insight?
1: It's very hard because we don't want to be taken advantage of. And I think the number one reason today is that it's so easy for us to find examples of bad behavior on social media. Social media has changed the world. We can find all kinds of bad things in every different part of the world. We read about it, extrapolate from it and say, oh, my God, it's going to happen here. And I'm going to and that's the that's going to be a real big, a terrible problem for me. So I think we need to work against it, build slowly, build a circle around us. We're all in the same boat. We need to work together and we need to elect leaders that are going to be able to represent the values that we have and not leaders that are doing things that exacerbate the racism I mean, we're all the same underneath. I don't care what color your hair is or your skin color or what your religion is, we're all human beings and we all need to respect each other.
0: Esther, in your book you say that every child has a gift and it's the responsibility of parents to nurture this gift. So tell me how you think this same lesson applies to managing people.
1: Every child has a gift and some children have gifts that can be a little challenging for their parents. They don't listen or you know, they throw things, they're more difficult. But I think when you treat a child with kindness, they will be kind, they model on your behavior. And if you're mean to them, they're gonna be mean to you. And if you see kids doing things that you don't respect, you have to take a look at yourself or the people you surround yourself with and ask yourself, are they modeling after those people? Just for example, I was in Japan this spring with my daughter Janet. And Tokyo is a city of 20 million people. 20 million. And she lost her brand new iPhone on the subway in Tokyo. She lost it. And in any other place I think in the world, you would never see that phone again. The next day, she went to the lost and found and picked it up. I'm telling you, this is a model. They model this from the top down. They model this in childhood, in schools, in their businesses. They're honest. We need good models so that we can also do the same thing. Of course, she was thrilled to get her phone back, and whenever we lose something, we should be able to get it back. We should trust, and first of all, like I said, We should trust our teachers because they're there to try to help your kid. And they deserve the respect of everybody. And right now, I mean, I just read an article in USA Today that most teachers can't afford to pay the rent. You know, we're paying them such a low salary, which is really, I mean, it shows complete disrespect for teachers.
0: In the preface of your book, your children, your three daughters, wrote that you taught them independence You taught them to believe in themselves and to make decisions. And you also referenced the fact that this is very much part of Google's culture. So tell us why feelings of independence are so powerful for human beings, you know, children and adults alike.
1: Independence is the key. If you feel you can do something, you can. And the only way you get this feeling of independence is by doing it you know, if your mother or father gives you an opportunity to do something yourself, let's say you're you know you're taking a, an antibiotic and you have to take it every four hours and you learn how to do it yourself, you're going to feel much more empowered and independent than if you're constantly having to have somebody do it for you. And I believe that kids are much more capable at an earlier age than a lot of people think. And that's what I did with my children. My goal was to teach them to be independent early on. And I think we have a society now where we're, the kids are much more dependent than they used to be because parents are very concerned about how safe their kids are. And they have the tools now to make sure that they are, quote, safe all the time. We can actually track our kids all the time. As a matter of fact, if you go online, you can find 2019 number one through number 20 top ways to track your children. Apps that you could get on the app store where you can follow your kids all the time to make sure that they're doing what you told them to do and make sure where they are. That's because we don't trust. And do you you know what that does to your kid? It violates their privacy. They, They know they're being tracked all the time. In a world where we need to rethink what we're doing and the way we're training our children and the way we're treating our teachers and the way that we are just behaving with trust in general, and especially in the business world. I mean, if you want to find the companies that are doing the best in the world, you just should take a look at how they treat their employees. Just look at like like Google and Apple. These companies, they trust and respect their employees. They're great models for all of us.
0: I just happened to read something this weekend that said that This is an astonishing number. 25% of incoming freshmen in college are on some kind of anxiety or depression prescribed medication. Is this a reflection of the independence piece that you just described? In other words, this monitoring, this micromanagement of children. Do you have an opinion on that? This
1: is a result of it. These kids are so fearful that they need to take anti-anxiety pills. Yep, it's a result of the helicopter parenting syndrome. We have more anxious kids. Actually, those statistics are low. It's 50% of the kids in college are so anxious, they don't know how to function.
0: So we have this Gen Y or Gen Z actually, the newest generation that just graduated. So right this month, the first graduating class of Gen Z, these are gonna be entering the workforce. What would you say to somebody who's going to be managing them, knowing that they have this kind of anxiety? What would be some of the things that you could do to help them succeed in the workplace, knowing that they're coming to you with a little bit of damage?
1: I think they are always going to want to make sure they're doing it right. So they're constantly in a situation of checking with you to make sure it's okay and right. And I think the best thing for you to do is to reassure them on a regular basis that what they're doing is right and that next time they don't have to check with you. That they can just take a step themselves without necessarily checking
0: What would you say to somebody who said, well, that's really needy and I don't have time to be doing that for them?
1: I would say that it is really needy. I'm sorry to say that's the problem. It is needy. Then the other thing you could do would maybe to have a workshop, some kind of a workshop for them where they work together for a day or two days and they talk about some of these Experiences they've had in college and with their parents and see if they can't work it out as a group because there's not just one of them there are a lot of them and so if they can practice on each other peer-to-peer support that also is another way to get them past this i'm afraid to take a step without help they don't realize the situation they're in so if you can have workshops that help them understand that Then you can work with, I don't know, 10 or 50 of them at a time, I would say. I wouldn't make it really huge, but maybe a group of 25 to 50 people at once. I know that Google even has workshops for their employees talking about the power of collaboration and teaching them how to collaborate more effectively. You know, I would do that in smaller companies and the same program.
0: But from a management standpoint, you're saying we need to just accept where they're coming from and be more caring, be intentionally more supportive versus just letting them figure it out on their own.
1: Well, it's going to be more effective to do it the way I suggested as opposed to letting them figure it out on their own, because that could take years.
0: You know, one of the things that struck me, you mentioned this whole idea of safety. Yeah and have parents being very concerned about the safety of their kids. But you did something that you wrote about in the book, which I actually kind of loved. It was you took your grandkids to Target, and you gave them the money, and they were going to buy their school supplies. And you basically let them go into the store and spend a half an hour by themselves without you not only supervising and directing, but you weren't even in the store. You were outside, sitting in your car, waiting for them. And one of your daughters, their parents, was furious at you because, you know, how could you possibly let these kids wander around in this dangerous Target store? And yet your whole point of view on this was, this is how you're going to teach them independence. So this might bristle some people today, but you had a real goal with this. So tell us about this.
1: Right. So my goal was to get them to be independent. I mean, they knew their school supplies better than I did. I didn't have to tell them what to buy. And so I just dropped him off. Actually, I wasn't in the parking lot. I drove over and had my other grandchild, he had to have his hair cut. And so I dropped him over there, it's a haircut place, and I said, tell him how you want to cut your hair. It's your hair, tell him what you want. And so then I left him there (laughs) while I went to pick up the girls after they had finished their shopping, you know, was like 15 or 20 minutes later. And at that point, it was like my daughter who called and said, what? You dropped them at Target by themselves? It's like, hey, the last time I looked at Target, it looked pretty safe to me. And um, not only that, they know how to do this. Yes, but they were thrilled, let me tell you. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. And they bought all the right stuff, and they paid for it themselves. And Picked them up, and then I picked up my grandson, and you know he looked pretty good too. He told them how he wanted his haircut, and they cut it. I
0: mean, you're giving your kids, grandkids, a lot of independence. How does this translate to in terms of managing adults? I mean, we still have a lot of people that manage from a very micromanaging orientation. What would you say to that?
1: I think that if you hired these people, they want to be on your team. So if you trust and respect them, and give them some independence honestly, they will do a really good job for you. They are never going to want to lose your trust and respect. So they're going to work really hard. The only time they don't work hard is when they think you don't like them and when they think you, you don't respect them. Then they get very nervous and it's hard to work well when you're nervous. And it's hard to work well when you think people don't like you. So I think that all companies should realize that. It's all one continuum. It starts at birth and continues all the way through your life. We're all human beings. We don't separate, you know, oh, now I'm done with school. Now I no longer need that. That's not true. You need it your whole life. You need trick your whole life. In your relationships with your spouse, too, by the way. I should mention that's also in the book.
0: Well, I mean, you've just nailed the whole philosophy of this podcast, and it's very untraditional thinking. You know, you think, well, he's a college graduate, or, you know, he's been in the workplace for six or seven years, or she has a PhD, or what have you, that they shouldn't need these kinds of things. And at the end of the day, the kinds of things that you're talking about, caring and kindness and independence, trust, these are values that amplify performance. That's really your whole thesis, isn't it?
1: That's right. It amplifies performance. I mean, my students, they rank at the top of the nation in their publications, in their writing, and their ability to think critically, in their test scores. It's because they are so passionate about what they're doing because they love it, that all those skills come along with it. It's a byproduct of being passionate.
0: So let me challenge that a little bit because as I was reading the book, I was thinking about, you know, the world that you live in is Silicon Valley and specifically Palo Alto, one of the wealthier, highly educated, very competitive, right? So you've got a lot of parents pushing their kids to succeed. So what are you undoing from a parent standpoint? It means, in other words, what are you doing to make your kids successful when you might have parents pushing you a little bit harder in a different direction, like make them more competitive and self-focused? And then my other question is, Do these values work when you don't have such highly motivated kids? Like, you know, if you took them into middle America somewhere or, you know, some school that didn't have the affluence and the hard driving motivation from parents to see their kids succeed.
1: Well, let's put it this way. When I first started teaching, I was teaching in a low income area in San Leandro and in Richmond. And it's interesting. That was before I was teaching in the Palo Alto School District. It was interesting for me to note that those kids also had exactly the same goals and those values that I used, even though they didn't have a name back then because I didn't know exactly what I was doing, it worked the same way with those kids. They became very motivated and it was because what I was teaching them to do, I tied into what their interests were and I enabled them to do something that they actually cared about. It was in an English class that I was doing that, English and social studies classes, because I was relating what I was teaching to the world around them today. That is a lot of what is missing in a lot of curriculum, is that the curriculum does not relate to the world today. So kids are like, why am I studying this? Why am I doing this? I have no idea, and the why, It's important for teachers to explain the why and then show it, not just explain it. That makes a huge difference. And it works with low-income kids too, with kids whose parents are not motivated and don't want to be competitive. I mean, all kids want to live a better life, all kids. And you're working with the kid as far as I'm concerned. You're not working, you know, it's the kid that's in my class. It's not the parent, although the parent is, of course, important, but I'm working directly with that child. And if I can get that child to understand that what I'm showing them how to do is going to make their life better, I'll tell you, they all want to do it. I don't care whether they're low income, high income, or from you know the richest state in the nation.
0: So you talk a lot about collaboration, and yet we're living in a very competitive world, so particularly Palo Alto. So every parent there wants their kids getting into Stanford and Cal and UCLA and Harvard and so forth. And yet your deep emphasis is on collaboration. So tell us how to reconcile these and why collaboration is one of your five values.
1: That's how we get things done in the world. Just look at all these companies. You're not gonna be able to get this done without collaboration. Or just look at my students put together newspapers, magazines, television, radio, podcasts. They all work in teams. You can't put out a newspaper by yourself. I guess you could, but it's a lot of work. And you know, the world is full of collaboration. We build a house, we collaborate to build a house. Just being a family, it's collaboration. You work together as a team for a family. There is a lot of competition out there. And so we want to encourage perhaps competition between teams, but not fierce competition where people are, you know, doing things that are considered inappropriate. I mean, we're all trying to be the best we can be. It's best to do it in a team, to work together as a group, it's more effective. Just give examples to people of how effective teams can be. Then they will understand how that works. I mean families, where the whole family works together, are much more effective as families than where there's a lot of dissonance and people fighting with each other.
0: Let's get to kindness. One of the things that I loved in your book, you said kindness gets results. It makes your life better while improving the lives of everyone around you. So tell us what you learned about kindness. I'll
1: tell you in a classroom for a teacher, kids might forget what you said and they might forget the dates and they might forget a lot of the details, but they will never forget a teacher who was kind to them. Never. You might want to think about that also. You know, in business, we all make mistakes. All of us, and we're not. No one's trying to make mistakes. It just happens, and so we try to rectify that mistake. And if you can treat that person with kindness, they will try even harder, and they'll also they'll be your friend forever. That is one of the things that I think is really important, and I just remember that from all my interactions with my students. I remember that from all my interactions with my friends and my family. And like I said, life is full of challenges. Every single day, there's something that happens to all of us and things that don't go the way they want to go. And you need to remember that kindness, kindness, by the way, and humor helps you get through all those things that didn't go the way that you were hoping that would go.
0: Someone once told me, great sense of humor is the most mature response to life. So I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, one of the things that seems to be a huge trend, that a huge change in trends is really the better way to say this, is that Stanford, for example, is now looking at the people that are applying, the 17 and 18 year olds, and they're looking to see whether they're caring and kind. So that's a big shift. You know, we're looking in the past at, you know, just academic success. How many AP classes? How well did they perform on the SATs? And now Stanford is looking at kindness and caring. So you have optics into this. So tell us why the pivot, why this is important, and actually how are they identifying it?
1: Yes, Stanford is on the right track. Kindness is the number one quality that Stanford is now seeking in its applicants. And um, they have a great new president, Mark Tessier-Lavine, who's focusing on that. And the former presidents also did that. They realized the importance of kindness in the world and caring in the world. Because it's not how many consumer items that you collect that makes you into a great person. It's the impact you have to make your life and other people's lives as effective and happy as possible. And so I think that they are looking at that through their applications and seeing what it is that their applicants have done that indicates that they care about other people, they care about the world, that they're not just busy doing things for themselves. And I'm really honored to be connected with Stanford University And I hope that this will spread to all the other universities as well.
0: What made them do it? What were they seeing?
1: I think they were seeing highly competitive people who were not concerned about making the world a better place. And because, you know, Stanford has been the leader or one of the leaders in all these startups, and the startups are highly competitive, and you want them to be competitive but you also want them to treat their employees and the rest of the world with kindness and i think maybe they were seeing they were seeing that that wasn't happening sufficiently and so they were were really working on that
0: what would you say if somebody's listening to this is going kindness is soft kindness is weak you can be kind but it, you don't have to lead with it
1: well, I think that they haven't personally experienced kindness, or they probably wouldn't say that. Kindness doesn't mean giving up. Kindness doesn't mean giving every kid a a trophy. Kindness doesn't mean telling people that they're great when they're not. Kindness means forgiving and listening, being understanding and, you know, giving people a second chance. I think that also kindness means working to empower other people, to help them also succeed in ways that they might never have even dreamed of. That's what kindness is all about. And I think it's really important for everybody to think about this before they just become ultra competitive.
0: Where did you get such a big heart? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you clearly have it. And you clearly demonstrated that you have powerful influence with people by using it. But nevertheless, these are tools that aren't common yet. And so I'm curious as to, you know, what's the big picture of Esther? What's your great epiphany about who you are and how you came to be who you are?
1: Well, I think that I I realized that along the way, this path that I took, which was really tough, there were people Along the way, that were really kind to me, and I realized the power of their kindness and how that helped me because it's been a long path. And like I said, every day is a challenge, and as a challenge for everyone, not just me. And so, I think that we all need to be kind to each other. That means, you know, little things like just, you know, smiling at people or, you know, including the custodian in your Christmas parties, or, I mean, there's so many ways that you can be kind. Mm. It's so easy. It doesn't cost anything at all. It's free. So we should probably think more about doing it.
0: You haven't really mentioned your children, and yet they became super high achieving. So one question I have just about that is, was that your goal? In other words, did they become high achieving because of these values? Or did you find that your ambition as a mother was to help them become high achieving?
1: My ambition as a mother, number one, I wanted to make them independent. Number two, I wanted to make sure they were never in poverty. And number three, I wanted to make them into really kind people. And I succeeded in doing all three. And I never ever expected them to be in positions that they are in today. I thought Susan would be a professor of English or something like that. You know, I had, I had no idea. Janet was thinking she might want to be in medicine, which she ended up being in medicine. And, and, you know, I thought, well, maybe she'll be a doctor or, I don't know, a nurse, something. I didn't know. I just wanted them to be in careers where they were making the world a better place.
0: So, you weren't pushing him saying, you need to be a doctor. You weren't the Jewish mom saying, <laughs> you know, you got to go to law school. You got to go to medical school.
1: No, never, ever. No, I didn't. I never said that. Susan majored in French and English history and let, you know, so that was definitely not on the
0: path. But you allowed them to find their way, is kind of what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah, they picked their own major. I never once looked at their college transcript, ever. I never helped them choose their classes in college. They did it all themselves. To this day, I don't know what the grade point average was in college, right now. <laughs>
0: Well, you raised independent children, obviously. Esther, we have a podcast tradition where we briefly break away from the discussion and transition into what we call the heartbeat round. What I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so questions about your life and philosophy and influences and have you answer each one with a quick, instinctive answer. In other words, answer each one in a heartbeat. Ready to go? Yes. Okay. Best holiday gift the parent can give a teacher?
1: A card in which they write... How that teacher has positively impacted their child. The one
0: book that's had the greatest influence on your life. 1984. The trait you admire most in other people.
1: Honesty and integrity.
0: And the trait you least admire in other people.
1: Narcissism.
0: You're still teaching in your late 70s. The one thing that would influence you to retire. My grandchildren. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Compassion
1: and empathy.
0: The quality that derails the most leadership careers.
1: Arrogance and lack of transparency.
0: Skill improvement you're working on right now.
1: Understanding quantum computing and the impact it will have on the world. (laughs) Wow.
0: One lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. To really believe in myself even more
1: than I already did.
0: A leader in business or society as a whole who you hold in the highest
1: regard. Warren Buffett.
0: Advice you'd give anyone considering becoming a teacher
1: today. Number one thing, trick: Respect your students and treat them with kindness. They will do anything for you.
0: And the most important leadership learning you've made in your life.
1: Inspire and empower others. Thank you so much
0: for going through the heartbeat round with me, Esther. Wonderful. Esther, before I let you go, my final question really does go back to parenting. And since we're talking about your three daughters, not to mention 36-year career of teaching students what stands out to you as being the greatest influencers on their high achievement? We've talked about kindness, and you can certainly comment on that again. But is there anything that you haven't really mentioned yet that you want to emphasize about the success of your students and of your children?
1: The greatest influences on them, I think, have been the role models and the stories that I told about role models that I thought were important people in history. I was always a great storyteller. We read a lot. And I kept that tradition with my daughters. We went to the library all the time. They were fortunate to have met a lot of very passionate people, people who were passionate about their careers. I think those people had a profound impact on them. My next door neighbor, George Danzig, who, if you look him up, is one of the founders of the whole internet world, a very humble man, a mathematician, I think he had a profound impact on them. And all the people that we met, you know, we traveled around the world. That was our number one thing. A lot of people bought furniture or possessions. We traveled. I think that also had a profound impact on them. Traveling shows you a lot about the world and how living different lives can also be just as wonderful as the one that you're living.
0: You are quite an evolved person, Esther, and I thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast. It's just been an absolute delight.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for including me, and I look forward to to listening to this podcast myself. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much.
0: Before we say goodbye, I want to tell you about a new article I just posted on LinkedIn few weekends ago, I went back and I re-listened to all 30 podcasts that we produced in our first year. And as I was listening, I jotted down what I thought were the most profound ideas that all of these enlightened guests had to share. And from there, I handpicked the ones that I thought were really the very, very best, the ones that I thought there were the most profound insights. And then I summarized them in a new piece. And the article is called 10 of the world's sages share their most important leadership advice and you can find it on the top right hand side of my website and whether you've listened to all 30 podcasts so far or just this one i promise that the distilled summary will help you greatly in your own leadership journey and i hope very much that you'll read it And as always, I want to quickly thank my team, webmaster Randy Yaunt and sound engineer and producer Eric Oz for all of the wonderful work that they do. And it wouldn't be a fair ending if I didn't leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you very much for listening and signing off for now.